chapter 16. This is the first Sunday of Advent, as we noted, which always raises a difficult question for me, and that is, what should we preach on during these uh, weeks? My favorite answer to that question is to preach on passages in the Old Testament which foreshadow the coming of Christ. And we've done that some in the past, uh, but in the one Advent season, you make it through about four of those, and there are many, 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 many passages. So this this year, we're going to do some of the same thing that we've done in the past and do, do even more of it. These hints of Jesus coming, as some of you know and some of you don't know probably, are called types of Christ. That doesn't make very good sense to us, uh, I don't think, uh, right off the bat. It's a concept taken from the Greek word tupos or typos, we would say it. Um, That word describes um, a visible impression left by a blow or some pressure so that if you have some wax and you have a signet ring and you put pressure on the wax it leaves an impression that matches the signet ring or if you hit something with a hammer it leaves an impression that matches what hit it it's kind of like a bit like typing in an old style typewriter which some of you know all about some of you've never even seen one of those Um, but when you type on a typewriter and you hit a key say you hit a key that says t on it and you hit that what really happens is there's this little arm that flies up And there's a little uh, uh, thing on the end of that that has a metal thing that says T on it. And it smacks the the, the ribbon and drives it into the page. And and all of a sudden on your page appears a T that matches what hit it. Well, that's what a type is. It's something that matches what impressed itself on it. Um, So throughout the years, from ancient times, God made impressions on the history, on the pages of history which represented in some way Christ Jesus, who is about to be revealed, who has now been revealed. During Advent, we're going to examine some of those Old Testament images or foreshadowings, I'd like to call them, of Jesus' coming. And since we celebrate the the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to start with an easy one, the manna. The manna, which God supplied in the wilderness for his people. It was a foreshadowing of Christ Jesus, who has now come in person. So we're going to read this morning from two passages. Our first point will come from Exodus 16, and which is the account of uh, God giving manna to his people in the wilderness. And our second, uh, uh, our second truth will come from John 6, where John, where actually the Lord Jesus unpacks for us what that's about. So let me read from Exodus 16, and this is a fairly long tale, so I'm going to skip through it a little bit. I'm going to read the first three verses, and then skip down and read verses 9 to 16. Exodus 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month they had come out of Egypt, after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Skipping down to verse 8. Moses said to Aaron, take the entire community and say to the entire community, come before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. 
And that evening the quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, ten fr uh, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. And we'll stop there. This gives us our first point about the man in the wilderness. And that point is this. God returns grace for our grumbling. God returns grace for our grumbling. You know, there are few things more intolerable than grumbling or griping or whining. Though we've all done it, few of us can stand it when others do it. For many parents, the surest way for their children to not get what they want is to whine or grumble about it. Griping gets you nothing. So it is truly amazing to re read this account and see God returning grace for their grumbling. The story starts out with Israel complaining again. In the previous chapter, they could be heard grumbling only three days after being freed from 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt. Three days it took them, and they were griping. Now, six weeks later, their griping begins in earnest. In fact, it is mentioned seven times in five verses. Listen to their complaint, as, uh, to their complaint against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire community to death. Are you kidding? Egypt was no luxury cruise with unlimited buffets of food and drink. They were slaves, remember? And why are they complaining against Moses and Aaron? if they only knew how much Moses did not want to go to Egypt. And the idea of bringing them out in the desert to starve to death, who do they think did that? It was God who defeated the whole Egyptian army in order to save them. Don't you hate that kind of belly aching? But while their grumbling may have been spoken to Moses, it was directed against God. Their deliverance was God's plan. Their deliverance was by God's hand. Their deliverance was, by, was with God's man. Their deliverance was by God's command. Their griping was all about the Lord. Be careful. When you whine and complain, you are complaining against the Lord. He is the one who holds every detail of your life in his hand, not your wife, not your husband, not your boss, not your parents, or anyone else. So God, God called these grumblers before him. We're not told exactly how this worked, and the chronology of these first 12 verses is a little bit difficult to, to unravel for sure. But according to verse 9, God had something to say then. Moses told Aaron, 
Say to the entire community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And sure enough, they looked out uh, toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. And so in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Therefore, tell them. Tell them what? Tell them what? Are you ready for this? Can you imagine what God has to say to this ungrateful bunch of whiners? How dare they speak of their Egyptian slavery as if it's better than God's freedom? How dare they impugn God's motives for bringing them out into the desert? How dare they rebel against God's chosen leaders who put their own lives on the line? And so the Lord said to Moses, I've heard their grumbling. I'm going to tell them what? At twilight, you will eat meat. And in the morning, you will be filled with bread. And then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. Are you kidding? In spite of what we might have expected, God returned grace for their ungrateful griping. And as we read on, we find that's exactly what happened. That evening, a flock of migrating quail, exhausted from the flight over the Red Sea, apparently, literally dropped in to see them. They were so exhausted that the people caught them with their bare hands and enjoyed something like Cornish game, game hymn, I guess. And in the morning, they awoke to what appeared to be snow on the ground. What is it? They exclaimed. And ever since, it's been called, what's it? Or as they say in Hebrew, manna. Now, all kinds of discussions taking place, trying to explain what exactly happened, what this manna was. But there's no rational, natural explanation that's ever been found for this manna. Didn't just appear that morning. It appeared every morning for 40 years, no matter where the people of Israel moved about the wilderness. You see, what we have here is not dumb luck. It's not just being in the right place at the right time. It's not shrewd planning by Israel's leaders. What we have here is God returning grace for his people's guilty grumbling. That's really an interesting point because later God judged them quite severely for their grumbling. In Numbers 11, they grumble about the manna being boring after so many years. And God, so God gave them quail again, but he judged them severely. In Numbers 12, they grumble about Moses again and being their leader and wanted to go back to Egypt. And God cursed them, swearing that they would die in the wilderness. So we need to be careful not to trample on God's grace or not try his patience. Clearly, he expects that we will grow up in our faith. But the fact remains, in this incident, God showed his amazing grace to totally undeserving people. There was not a word of rebuke from the Lord. Instead, it rained down manna from heaven and it blew in quail for meat to eat as God returned grace for grumbling. That's how God is. He's full of grace. 
He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not give us what we even have asked for. He gives us grace. Grace. No wonder eventually, no wonder Israel eventually came to romanticize these days in the desert. What a wonderful experience it was out there, they thought. God gave us free food every day. All we had to do was pick it up. And so they eventually built a whole theology about their wilderness experience. This is what they came to expect when the Messiah come. It's going to be like that again. But God's grace in the wilderness in the form of manna was only a token of what was to come. The fullness of God's grace in Jesus. For, this, for God's will is not just to feed our stomachs and sustain our life. God's will is to give us eternal life in a whole new creation. And all the manna in the world won't do that. Which brings us to our second point, which we find in John 6. So if you want to turn to John 6, you can. I'm going to read a few verses there. John 6, reading verses 48 to 58, which is toward the end of a very long discourse that Jesus has. Verse 48, Jesus is speaking. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate man in the desert and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. (laughs) Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I, be, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And so our second point, only Jesus can give life to your soul. Only Jesus can give life to your soul. A lot of you know our son, Nathan. I try not to tell stories about him, but it's just too good to be true sometimes. As long as our son, Nathan, was at home, we spent a lot of money on breakfast cereal. Like some of you, perhaps, he thought cereal was the ultimate food. His favorite cereal was called Life. Life cereal, you may have had it. We're pretty happy about that, for at least it had some nutritional value. And he did eat a lot of it. First thing in the morning, probably two bowls. Jane told him he could only have one bowl, so he just found a bigger bowl. Got home from school, Mom, can I have a bowl of cereal? An hour after supper, shall I have some ice cream or shall I have some I think I have some cereal. If live cereal can make a boy grow healthy and strong, our son is the picture of fitness. Here Jesus is speaking to people remembering the good old days when they lived on life cereal. Well, actually it was called manna. But it was similar to life cereal. It had all the minimum daily requirements of vitamins and minerals, etc. 
The only difference was that God dropped a fresh batch on their porch every morning. He never did that for us. (laughs) For 40 years, God's people ate manna every day, and it sustained their life. What a gift from a gracious God. No wonder these people were pursuing Jesus with such interest. Earlier in this chapter, he had done this spectacular thing. He had fed 5,000 men plus their families with one little boy's lunch of five buns and two little fish. And they saw that and they said, this is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to bring us free food again. They expected manna from the wilderness. Manna from heaven, just like they had in the wilderness. But here Jesus makes sure they understand, oh no, I am the bread of life. He himself is the nourishment for their souls. In these verses, Jesus distinguishes between the manna from heaven, which they'd heard about and dreamed about, and the bread of life, which he called himself the fulfillment of that picture, which was the manna. That manna, for all its glory, frankly, was deficient. And you say, well, how could it be deficient? It was food that you could live on for 40 years, and it was dropped free in your, in your front yard every day. What could be better? But in verse, Jesus, in verse 49, Jesus says, your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Yes, life was wonderful back in the good old days. But they died. Our son Nathan learned to eat life cereal from his grandfather. Grandpa Sutton had determined that this was the very best cereal. Therefore, it was special in our house. But Grandpa Sutton died. You see, Jesus is saying, you can have the best food in the world. You can have food so balanced without any supplement that you eat just that for 40 years and you'll be healthy. Food supernaturally delivered by God himself six days a week. But you still die. And then what? All the man in the world does not give you life after death. Now Jesus doesn't really go into it, but when we look at the rest of the Bible, we learn that there was even a greater deficiency to manna than that. Why were they eating manna for 40 years? Do you remember? Because they were under God's judgment. That's why. God had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. And he brought them right up to the entrance of the land at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And he said, okay, go in there and take possession of the land. It's yours. I give it to you. And he got afraid. And they said, no, we're not going to go. He said, trust me. No. No, they wouldn't trust him. And so in his anger, God said, these people are never going to enter my rest, never. And he sent them out in the wilderness to wander around for 40 years until every single person in that generation had died. Except Joshua and Caleb, who wanted to go into the land. Oh, yes, he gave them manna. He provided for their physical needs, but eating all the man in the world could not produce what they needed most, which was forgiveness for their sins and restoration to their God and entrance into God's promised rest 
And so they died in the wilderness, physically and spiritually. They died eating manna. Folks, God may have blessed us with all the material wealth in the world. We may eat royal fare every day. God may drop manna in our lives, our whole, in our lap, our whole lives. But in our text, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and I alone can give you life for your soul, eternal life. You can have it all and still have nothing. You can gain the world and still lose your soul. Jesus' point is not just that the manna was deficient. The manna was wonderful. His point is that he is the real life-giving food. He is what the manna was pointing to. Jesus, who gives life to our souls. Now, what exactly about Jesus holds the promise of nourishing our souls with eternal life? Well, Jesus starts off just making general statements. He says in verse 48, I'm the bread of life. And verse 50, I'm the living bread that comes down from heaven. But as the passage goes on, he makes more pointed and more disturbing statements. Jesus gets very specific. In verses 53 to 56, listen to him. He said, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Four times he speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. What on earth is Jesus saying? This part sounds really unpleasant to our ears. It sounded unpleasant to these people, too. They began to leave him in droves. When he said that. But this is where Jesus defines exactly how he nourishes our souls to life. So we have to understand what he's saying. First, he speaks of his flesh. We've heard him use that word before in the Gospel of John, back in chapter one, where he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word became God, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and, and uh, the word became flesh. There's that word, and dwelt among us. That word flesh is the most offensive word that could be used for humanity in, in, in the Greek language. I like to paraphrase it. Jesus became a grunt for us. You know, I flew airplanes. The guys that crawl through the mud, we call them grunts. <laughs> Jesus became a grunt. The living word, God the Son, came down into the dirt and the mud of the earth to live in a tent with us. Only that God who became human flesh can give life to your soul. And then he speaks of his blood. This was especially offensive to the Jews, for the law forbade them to drink blood or to even eat meat with the blood still in it. To drink his blood was an abhorrent thought to them. So what did Jesus mean? Well, D.A. Carson, the New Testament guy, points out that, quote, the primary symbolic reference of blood in the Bible is not to life, but to violent death. That is, to life violently and often 
sacrificially ended. Like when an animal sacrificed it, his blood was spilled. Jesus there is pointing to his death on the cross. He is saying that it is not his profound ethical teaching which gives us life. It is not his wonderful example that gives us life. It is his bloody, ugly, violent, sacrificial death on the cross which gives us life. In flesh and blood, Jesus came to the world into our putrid human situation. And according to verse 51, he gave his flesh and blood for the life of the world. He paid for the sins which separate us from God. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. (laughs) And because of this, Jesus is able to do what eating manna could not do in a million years. He cleanses us from sin. He repairs our relationship to God. He gives us eternal peace with God. He reconciles us to himself. He brings us health and life forever. If you're buying cereal these days, you better read the label because some of it has nutrition and others have the same nutrition as the cardboard box. And religion is no different. Everything that passes as food for your soul is not the same. There are things which will make you feel really good. There are things which will take your mind on flights of fancy and unknown worlds. There are things which will draw you closer to friends in the same religious fad. Or things which will give you the opportunity to punish yourself for the rest of your life in hopes that somehow you can rid your soul of your guilt and your self-hatred. But only Jesus can give eternal life to your soul. Only in Jesus has God come near us, down and dirty in human flesh. And only in Jesus has God made the same kind of bloody sacrifice that can atone for the wretched, bloody sin that cut us off from him. Only Jesus is the bread of life. As we come to the Lord's Supper... Let me make it clear. These passages are not pointing to the Lord's Supper. Some people have thought that and they've got themselves into kind of crazy theology. No, on the contrary, the Supper, the sacrament, is pointing us to these truths that we talked about this morning, that God returns grace for our guilt and that Jesus, by his sacrifice of himself, gives eternal life to our souls. That's what we celebrate this morning in the supper. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your weaving of things together is not just the genius of a good author, Lord, for you've done it in history. You've woven together events that happened a millennium and a half before Jesus was born to help us to understand what happened when Jesus came and 
lived and died and rose again. Help us to have a heart, Lord, for that discussion and to seek it out in your word and to believe it, to nourish our souls on it. Thank you for these great truths this morning about our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.